I'm pretty excited today because for a few moments I get to talk about one of my favorite topics on earth, which is food. I'm convinced that at creation, God made the mountains and the oceans and, and so forth and the birds and the lizards. And, and there, were, there, were, there were a few things that he got really excited about. If you, read, if you read the account in Genesis, he says, that was good, that was good, that was good. And I'm, I'm convinced that food was one of those things that he just kind of thumped his fist at when he did that thing. When he, when he designed food and the system of flavor and taste and, and appetite, I, I, I imagine he said, that's, that's great, that's good stuff. I think, I think there, was, there were probably a handful of things like art and sex and music and, uh, and, and food that, that he, he looked at and he just thought, here's a gift. Because his favorite creation was human beings. There's no question about that. He, he, when, he, he, when he made you, he pumped his fist. He was, he was excited about that. And there's no good father that doesn't want to pour out gifts on, on their child. And so he, he created these things as a gift. And I'm, I'm convinced that, that meals are special. Good, th good things happen at, at mealtime. I was in an island called Gotao in, in South Thailand years ago. It's a little island. Gotao means turtle island. And I'd gone there on vacation. I, I was in the middle of campus ministry, and I, I blocked it off a year ahead of time and just took a backpack and got on a plane and vanished for 30 days. It was paradise, and I've thought a lot about doing that this week. Um, I, I, was, I, was in a, I was in the airport in Narita, Japan, and sitting across from this hippie. He had his legs crossed in front of me, and we both were just exhausted. We'd been flying for like 20 hours and started up a conversation. He, he, no joke, he actually talked like this, dude. This is how the guy talked. And, and asked him where he was going. He, he owned real estate in, in L.A., and so he rented that out. Uh, it, was, it was right on the beach in Manhattan Island, or uh, Manhattan Beach. So he rented out his apartments and traveled the world. That's all the guy did. So he had these two apartments he rented out, and he travels year-round. He says, oh, man, because I had no idea what I was going to do once I got to Thailand. He said, you got to go to Gautau, man. It's just the coolest place in the world, cheapest place to scuba dive, and, and uh, the food's so great, and it's just beautiful beaches. And, and so when I got to Thailand, I did my thing in Bangkok for a while and did some travel and said, okay, i got to go to Gautau. So I get there, uh, overnight uh, boat ride, and get off the boat. And I, no joke, I had been on the island for maybe three minutes when Hippie Guy flies past me on a moped. He goes, man! He gets off his, of his moped and he comes, he goes, I knew you'd make it, dude! And he's hugging me. And, and, uh, but while I was there, I learned to scuba dive. It's the cheapest place on earth to scuba dive. Gorgeous, gorgeous, amazing place. I had uh, four days of dive instruction, four nights at a beachfront bungalow, uh, all the equipment for diving, the, the fruit snacks between, and it was $280 for four days, including the beachfront bungalow. Just cheap, cheap, cheap. And... Uh, on that, and I met these three guys from Manchester, England, and we became buddies quickly. One of them was my dive buddy. He's the guy that's supposed to keep me alive if I pass out underwater. And so we spent quite a bit of time together and got to know his two friends, and his two friends were dating two Thai girls that they had met somewhere in Thailand. And, but we really enjoyed each other. We'd get up each morning and go eat what they called a proper English breakfast. There was this little pub down there, and they'd have proper English breakfast, and we'd throw darts. And... We'd been there for maybe four days, and they were leaving the next day, and I was leaving two days later. So we decided we were going to have like a, a last hurrah. And in Thailand, all over the place are these little, little restaurants. Uh, this one's called the Blue Wind. That's not the one that I was at, but they look a lot like this. And out front, they'll have marquees that will list the movies they're showing that day. And the movies they show at these restaurants are always the movies in theaters at that time. So these are bootleg copies. I remember... 
Um, on the Saturday of the premiere of Pirates of the Caribbean 2, my wife were in Thailand, and we watched that movie in a restaurant. That's how they do it. They go in and film it, and then they show it at the restaurants. And so we go to this restaurant, and they have Japanese-style seating. I don't know if you can tell, but these people are sitting on the ground. There's little, little recliners. So they lay on the ground, and they tilt back like this, and you just kind of lay there. And then they've got these plasma high-def TVs all over the ceilings. And so we went in, me and my, my three buddies and, and their girlfriends went in, and we, we probably got there at five at night, six at night, started the meal, started ordering food, and we ordered, I, I, no joke, we ordered two fruit shakes apiece, three appetizers apiece, and two or three entrees apiece throughout the course of the night. We sat there and we watched movies. Uh, so the meal, I mean, the food just kept coming. It was, it was insane. It was ridiculous. We watched two movies that night. Um, we watched The Pianist with, is it Adrian Brody? Is that his name? That's what I said, Adrian Brody. Um, so we watched that, which was kind of a, <laughs> and then we watched Mr. Bean's Holiday. And so it was kind of an up and down sort of night. And we had so much food that we literally fed other people in the restaurant. Like we just kept ordering and ordering and ordering because it's cheap there. And so we just ordered food, ordered appetizers. I might have had four fruit shakes that night. I'm not sure because they do fresh fruit in a blender. It's delicious. And uh, so we started going to other tables saying, hey, we got too much food. You want some? And just pass it. So it becomes this big party where everybody in the restaurant is kicked back watching Mr. Bean and eating food and just having a blast. And one of the coolest things about it is at the end, the bill came, and uh, it was in Thai baht. And, and when I was traveling back then, it was 42 baht per dollar. And it's kind of hard to believe, but my share of the bill, $7.80. And so... <laughs> I mean, it was like, well, let's do this again tomorrow night, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you, and I've been in touch with those guys since then, there was something about that situation that connected me to those guys in a way that I'm not connected to most people typically. There's, there's something about a great meal. There's something about a feast. Um, I, I remember my dad owned Burger Chef restaurants growing up. I don't know if anybody remembers Burger Chef. He had the choice to go into, at, at the bottom level, he could have gotten involved in McDonald's or Burger Chef, and he chose poorly. So when I was a little kid, we, would, we, were, we were not allowed to say the word McDonald's in our household. Like, it was a cuss word. Like, I could probably say a bunch of other words before I could get away with saying McDonald's. Literally, we would drive past McDonald's, and we would be, he would expect us to look face first. We could not look sideways and look at those golden arches. That's... I mean, because McDonald's rocketed, and, you know, Burger Chef eventually sold out to Hardee's. And so, uh, bad decision. But I was with some buddies in Danville, Illinois, where, where Burger Chef kind of got its start. And we went to the one remaining Burger Chef in the country at the time. It actually converted to, it's called Schrader's is what they called it. One of my dad's partners converted it. But I remember the, there, were, uh, there were five of us sitting, six of us sitting there. And... For whatever reason, sitting there at Schrader's restaurant, I remember we started laughing about something, something that was said. And then we started laughing about something else. And it got to the point where we were laughing so hard that I think literally there were liquids flying out on the table at one point. And we laughed so hard that night that for two days afterwards, my ribs hurt and my face just wouldn't quite fix. I mean, it was the kind of, like there were literal physical remembrances of all the laughter. And having been through that with those guys, for whatever reason, because I've only been with them for two or three weekends out of my entire life, but for whatever reason, I remember them as some of my fondest friends. I remember them as people that I have bonded with and connected with.
And I'm just, I'm just what, a few of our people just had a milkshake date this week. Karen Canary, you're always getting these milkshake pictures. <laughs> yeah, thanks to Abby. But the same type thing. Abby came home and said, we just laughed, and we laughed so much. And I guarantee this picture will bring joy to their hearts 20 years from now if they see it, and they will remember that meal. There's something about memories, and there's something about meals, and people connecting. Meals are the places where people connect. If you think about it, the people you're closest to in your life are people that you eat with most often. There's just there's something about meals and memories and connections. My wife and I watch Top Chef. Almost every night we'll watch about a half an episode of Top Chef. We're on season nine now. And there's this restaurant called Rouse in New York, and apparently you cannot get into Rouse. Like, it's by, I don't know what kind of restaurant gets away with this, but it's invitation only. That's, that's how you get to eat at Rouse. And apparently they've been around for, you know, 18 million years, something like that. And this is the owner, and he's as mafioso as they come, right? And they, they did a, like a mafia spoof on Top Chef, and I don't know if you know the reality show, but the, the chefs cook off and then somebody gets sent home for cooking poorly at the end of, this, of, the, of the episode. But at the beginning of the meal, this guy who is the owner of Rouse and his son, who is partial owner at this point, he stands up um, to toast everybody. And he's got his glass of champagne or wine or whatever it is. And he goes through one by one and he, he, says, he says, this is so-and-so. And so-and-so started cooking for me 28 years ago. And I remember he was only about this tall when he did. And he cooked his first gnocchi, if that's the right word. You know, he's cooked this. And, 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 but he talks like this the whole time. And I can't even do it, so I'll embarrass myself if I try. But he goes, and this is Jimmy the Vest. And this dude had this big sequin vest on. So when I first saw him, I thought, what? what's up with the vest? But apparently this guy shows up at Rouse every day in this vest. He's one of the bartenders. He says, this is Jimmy the Vest. And Jimmy's been with me for 37 years. Hey, we go way back, don't we, Jimmy? He's going, yeah, we do. And they're, you know, saluting each other. And I... It's not very often that I'm starstruck, but for some reason, looking at this guy in his perfect suit and getting up and just making people feel good about themselves, I thought, I want to be that guy. Like, if the Hindus are right in my next life, I hope I come back as him, right? And, but just, just the situation over a meal to get together and salute people, to look people in the eye and to say, you are important, and you're important, and you're important to me. And I think our culture and, and our society is moving to where we get further and further away from that. We get to the point where we'd rather have a screen in front of us. and We'd rather Skype with somebody sitting next to us on the couch. It doesn't make sense at all. But meals are a place of connection. And I think Jesus knew that. And I think, I think it, it, you find this theme that's consistent throughout Scripture about God and humans and food. And I think there's a reason for that. If you, uh, the Apostle John, who was quite possibly Jesus' best friend, I don't know if you know John's story, but they tried to kill him, and he didn't die, so they exiled him to this island called Patmos. And on the island of Patmos, he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, he, he claimed that, that Jesus appeared to him in this series, uh, a series of visions, and so he wrote down these visions. So uh, the book of Revelation is, there's some wacky stuff in there, man. It's hard, it's hard to figure out. But when he talks about Jesus and how Jesus approaches us, this is what John says Jesus said to him. He says, behold, I stand, or here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens up, he says, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And I think about Jesus, and Jesus could have easily said, here I am on my mountaintop. If anyone will bow down and worship me, I will be his God. If anyone will obey me, 
I will allow him to obey me. He could be that kind of God. But instead, he's the kind of God that says, I'm going to knock on the door of your life, and we're going to share a meal together. And when you think about the importance of meals, what kind of God is that? He comes and says, I want to come into your life, and I want to be face-to-face with you. I want to stand up at your table and lift my glass to you and say, thank you. Thank you for coming with me for the last 24 years. And it's, a, it's, it's all throughout Scripture. If you read the Song of Solomon, it gets pretty erotic. Um, this passage in particular is, is relatively erotic. It says, as the apple tree. And so in, the, in this, the book Song of Solomon, scholars everywhere pretty much recognize that this is a descript- the, the description between the bride and the groom is um, allegorical for, actually, that's not the right word, is it? It's symbolic of our relationship with God, the bride and the groom, that we are the bride, he is the groom, and that we come to him as lovers. And so in this passage, it says, as the apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sit down under his shadow with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house. and His banner over me was love. There's, there's a, a mixed drink that I've heard of called uh, sex on the beach, and I think there's a dessert called better than sex. And a lot of times... People want to compare food to sex, and in this passage, it does does just the reverse. It it shows this erotic situation between a lover, uh, a wife, and her husband, and how she's tasting his fruits and reclining under an apple tree, and it it basically says it was like a feast. It was like a banquet. His banner over me was love. So you see, at the beginning, when when we talk, in the first passage where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if, if you'll open up, I'll come in and share a meal with you. Now here we see kind of the result of that. You say, so he comes in and we share a meal, but then you see that it becomes this, this erotic feast, this, this romantic uh, connection, one-on-one connection with another person. And, and this is God describing how he wants to be with you. He's using food to do it. And once again, in the book of Revelation, we find out at the end of time, an angel says this to John. He says, and I, put, I did it in King James because Revelation just sounds better in King James, in my opinion. It says, and he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. He could have said anything here. He could have said, blessed are those who enter the kingdom of heaven in its golden streets. Blessed are those who see the mountain of God. Blessed are those, and it could have gone on and on about all these descriptions of what heaven will be like. And you'll see, once again, the angel communicating on God's behalf says it will be a banquet. It's going to be a place where people sit across the table from one another and raise their glasses to each other and recognize each other. And all throughout Scripture you see this theme. This is a picture of pancakes and bacon. <laughs> I got, that's all I got. I have a couple random thoughts, and then we're going to talk about communion. I hope this is a church that will eat together. I, I wouldn't mind if people say, Daylight Church, isn't that a church where people are always eating together? I don't think anybody would ever say that, but it would be cool if they did. I just hope that we know each other, that we sit face-to-face across from one another and get to know each other. I hope, I hope that when you get out of here, and there's some of you, I watch you, man, you bolt for that door, you're out of here, you don't want to talk to anybody. I'm like trying to chase you to shake your hand, and I don't even want to shake your hand, really. And so, take, take the time to go face-to-face. Say, hey, what are you guys doing for lunch? A lot of times after we tear down here, we go out to lunch. So stick around. Go eat with us. 
This picture is the cover of U2's newest album called The Age of Innocence. And some people took it the wrong way when it came out, and maybe you'll see why. It's a young boy with a man draped around his waist. And it's like, what, what in the world does that picture mean? And, but when you know what the picture is, then you start to understand what the picture means. And that's the drummer of U2 with his 19-year-old son. And so this is a picture of a father with a son. And I just think it, it, it shows, it, it, to me, this is kind of a picture of God. I, I, there's nothing I like better than laying in bed at night when my son will come in the room and he will fall on me and lay his head on my chest and I'll stroke his hair and he'll tell me about his day. He's six years old, about to be seven, and it just doesn't get any better than that. And I'm convinced that's the kind of intimacy God wants with us. And so when we talk about communion, that's the kind of thing we're talking about is this place to come where the, with the Father and lay our head on his chest and let him stroke our hair and get to know us. There's a couple things I don't like about this picture. Number one is Jesus never went, which is what you see in every stinking picture of him everywhere. At least he doesn't have a halo, I don't think. So that's good. I also am not a big fan of John. You see the Apostle John there, which is on your left, is the first one uh, nearest Jesus. And if you read the passages of Scripture about the Last Supper, you find that they were in Japanese-style seating. They kicked back and reclined. And it says at one point that John, whose head was resting on the chest of Jesus, and it describes that situation between Jesus and one of his disciples. And in the picture, we feel like Jesus is unapproachable. Oh, he's holy. There's got to be space around Jesus. Not true. They were bunched up together, sitting where their feet, where their feet could touch each other's. I don't want to touch your feet. Keep your hairy legs away from my hairy legs. I'm not interested. But at this time, Jesus... And John embraced and laid together. And so when you talk about the Last Supper, see, Jesus could have had a last sermon instead if he really wanted to. Couldn't he have gotten a pulpit somewhere and they could have stood out there and he could have stood up here? But in his, in his dying breaths, in the last things that he wanted to do, he wanted to eat dinner with his disciples. That was his desire. He arranged the whole thing, the Passover feast. So when we talk about communion, we see this picture of a God who wants to sit across the table from us. 